Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hello and welcome to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined today by Noah. Hey, y'all. It's been a few weeks now since we've put together a um, an episode on current events. And boy, have there been current events. Yes, a lot of history has happened. There's obviously been massive protests across the country, across the world even, um, about police brutality and the disproportionate weight of police brutality upon African Americans in this country and you know racial minorities in other countries. And one of the many effects of all this protesting, all this focus on police has been a renewed look at the role of police in the broader labor movement. Police have unions, though in many cases, most cases even, they don't refer to themselves as unions. They use terms like benevolent association or here in Rochester, the locust club, which is a pun about billy clubs. And historically, Police and the broader labor movement have been at odds. Uh, In American history and in history elsewhere, you see it has been the police who have been brought in to quell some of the larger uprisings and, you know, outrage from the labor movement towards the conditions of the day dating back to the 19th century. And so where we're going to begin today's discussion is by talking about what's happening now and how that's maybe changing the way police are viewed within the movement. It's it's important to note that even in very recent history, like we're going we're talking here like 10 years ago in Scott Walker's Wisconsin, you know. And in a number of these states what you had was uh state governors especially singling out Police unions, sometimes also fire uh, firefighters unions, mm-hmm. but let's be clear, firefighters are good. They save lives, which, as we have found out over the past couple weeks of protesting, not that in Western New York we have particular reason to think of cops this way or anything, but cops tend to you know, end them more than they tend to actually do anything to continue them. But they they would single out police unions as the one public sector union that wasn't subject to cuts. They would make sure to keep the cops on their side. And I don't think that did police unions any real favors in the long term because all it created, or rather all it really laid bare because that already existed, was the fact that cops, and we should stress this as we move on to this topic, they are ultimately not workers. They are in the in the context of the labor movement that we have in the United States. The police have always stood on the side of property. They have not joined workers. They have not fought for workers. They have not advocated for workers. The only time police unions have been remotely cognizant of their status as people who in any way sell their labor 
is in recent days when they haven't had cities, various localities over the, the United States, haven't been able to pay them all the overtime that they owe them for putting them in the streets constantly to, you know, beat up protesters. And uh, otherwise, just just kind of, uh, you know, they, they just make themselves a nuisance whenever you tell them that they're not allowed to do whatever they want. And that's not so much a union as a bunch of very whiny people. <laughs> but thankfully... We've had enough of the whining from noted unions like the the NYPD's Benevolent Association, the NYPD famously benevolent. That's what it's known for. Um, or as Ryan, as you said, the Locust Club, which is our local one, which let me just explain for those of you who are, are maybe haven't listened to our previous episode on police, which you really should go back and listen to. Uh, we had great voices on that one discussing the role of, of police in the city. But um, when Ryan says that that's a pun on Billy clubs, what he means is that the clubs used to be made out of locust wood. So it is, it, it's not a second removed joke. It's literally about the object that they use to dish out violence on working people. I, I think it's noteworthy that you bring up like uh, 10 years ago, the aftermath of the Great Recession, you know, local budgets across the country were being slashed in areas like, you know, education and all the other things cities do, but not in policing. Uh, police budgets have only really r- risen over the past four decades, even as crime has fallen dramatically. You know, we're now a much less violent society than we were in the 1990s, but there's a whole lot more police officers on the streets now than there were then. And really, local budgets is going to be the crux of the matter, I think. It's where these conflicts are going to be played out. The demand of the recent protests has been to defund the police in a way that you didn't hear even just five years ago when the Black Lives Matter movement was beginning. There's a real demand to not just you know give them more body cameras or increase their training because those things haven't really helped over the past five years, but to defund them because otherwise in the aftermath of coronavirus and the economic downturn that resulted in, you're going to have another round of austerity. And what's going to happen is budgets are going to be cut again for social services, education, all the things that cities do to help their residents, but they're going to be increased. Once again, police budgets are going to go up almost as a response to the unrest that is bound to create. We shouldn't untangle the fact that economic you know, downturns result in no small amount of anger and unrest, and policing is concretely the way cities have chosen to respond to that crisis. Yes. So Twitter and and the internet in general uh, for the last couple of weeks have been full of, and this is pretty impressive to me, the fact that in almost every single city you can think of that's larger than like a thousand people, if you look at the local budget, the percentage that goes to the police versus literally any other service, I mean, education, any kind of healthcare, like municipalities provide that really, any kind of services, especially services that are things that we just, what's ultimately happened is that localities have just thrown these problems at the cops. And they've just said, listen, we don't want to spend money on things like mental health care. We don't want to spend money on things like schools. We don't want to spend money on literally anything uh, because 
if we do, we're criticized as tax and spend, and we're criticized as giving handouts to people. So we're just going to have you deal with it. And in the interest of far more fairness than the police in this country are due, there's even some cops, even locally here in Rochester, who have said and have tried to push back against that, saying, you know, we're not trained for any of this. So you want to talk about like the training that they do get. It's not training that helps them deal with anything else. It's training that just, you know, it's killology and it's stuff that makes them, you know, better, essentially predators, ultimately. Nothing that the police spends money on is actually helping them make anybody safer because as it turns out, the factors that make society safer have nothing to do with police. Yeah. Ultimately, they're they're just a reflection of how of what our priorities are as a country, and we've decided that our priorities are putting the bully club in the hand of somebody to beat you up if you have an issue with the way that society is going. Yeah. Um, if you haven't seen these charts that have been floating around the internet of local budgets, they really are a staggering thing. And one of the reasons we're talking about this on Punching Out today is, once again, this question about police within the broader labor movement. You know, these police unions are part of broader labor organizations like, say, the AFL-CIO, which a f- couple unions within that have started to make the push to call for them to be expelled from the AFL-CIO. I'm going to read now from a story in In These Times, uh, headline, Workers United Branch Calls on AFL-CIO to Expel Police Unions. Um, In a statement today signed by more than 120 members, the union says that conflating our mission with that of police unions undermines our solidarity and says that white supremacy is central to our system of policing. Therefore, we urge the labor movement to cut ties with police unions. The statement specifically cites the demand for the AFL-CIO to expel the International Union of Police Associations, the Labor Coalition's major police union. And I think we have to see this call as a good thing. We have to see the fact that these demands are being made in a way that, once again, they weren't even just a few years ago. Is It means that this moment is bigger than it has been in the past. And it and it means that in a lot of ways the labor movement, which for most of I think it's fair to say, Ryan, for most of our lives, has been running scared from anything that identifies it as remotely on the left of American policy, is actually taking a political stance. Because I mean, for a very long time, uh, the AFL-CIO, SEIU, all of these big, big unions were sort of taking a hands-off, more NGO-like approach to representing their members and just kind of trusted that, you know, the Democratic Party would do. And um, increasingly what you're seeing is a return to labor radicalism and the willingness to go against leadership. Because, I mean, getting expelled from the AFL-CIO was previously reserved for, like, communists, And now you're seeing that actually get deployed against cops who have, again, and I think maybe this is why you're seeing this, uh, you've got a lot of working class people realizing that when cops and police unions win, it is almost always at the expense of other working people, no matter how often you're sold the fantasy that it isn't. When police unions are able to secure better money and better benefits and better protections for their staff, 
that is a zero sum game. Like we have uh, punching out co-host Lou who famously likes to say that it doesn't have to be, but in the case of police, they have made it that they have ensured that every time that they win, it's by austerity to everybody else. Every time the cops win, nurses and teachers and flight attendants and firefighters and literally everybody else in society loses. So they, they're pretty mad that they are now reaping what they sowed for decades and it, it's kind of hardening to see that that's not stopping people. There's sort of a cruel irony in all of this, which is that you know the police unions have been the ones acting like unions in the past uh, few decades. They have been the ones with an adversarial relationship towards power. They have been the ones making sure that their demands are met by those in power. Uh, in New York, Bill de Blasio is famously afraid of you know, the New York police department. There is no question about that. He's so scared of them. And he has no small amount of reason to be. They, uh, during the protests a few weeks back, they like doxed his daughter who had taken part in the protest and been arrested as a result of that. They are famously willing to seek retribution against those who wronged them. Even if those are, you know, politicians, you know, people with, big platforms from which to call them out. Um, and it's in a way it's like the mafia, you know, a way of keeping yes. people in line. And let's be clear, policing in this country has always been like the way we have done policing in this country, at least after the days of, you know, the, the Charleston city guard and other kind of uh, slave patrols that were explicitly organized. When I say explicitly, I mean like it's in the text of why they existed to oppress black people. The way that we have done organized policing where that has become more implicit and police is at pains to say that they are not agents of violence upon, you know, working class, non-white people, whatever. Um, the, the way that they have done it is typically by recruiting groups of people into what is ultimately just the state sanctioned protection racket. So what you've got now is in fact... You know, I, I don't remember what his name is, and I don't want to make a guess because it'll sound too stereotypical. But the head of the of the NYPD's police union is famous for doing exactly what you're saying. Like he'll just openly take on the Blasio in communications on the internet, and he'll tell his members to strike at the slightest opportunity. And these are things that employees in so many other industries can't or won't do because they're too afraid of management. But it turns out that when you have free military equipment sitting in your warehouses. When you have, uh, in the case of the NYPD, a freaking foreign intelligence agency that operates in like 13 countries with zero oversight. When you have the kinds of things that like small countries have, you are a force unto yourself and you know that you can uh, at the very least publicly override the mayor. Uh, I think these, these police unions, they know this. They know that they are gangs, essentially, just gangs that the state pays. So we, we really haven't changed in uh, the way that we construe police within the wider societal context. It's just the mask is off now. We've stopped pretending that they are agents of the capital L law, and we've just admitted that they're there to keep a certain kind of powerful people. That doesn't include, you know, Bill de Blasio. That doesn't include police reform advocates. That doesn't include anybody who goes against them in public. Those people are are exempt from police protection. I think you're right to point out 
this idea of capital L law. Um, the last few years especially have done a real good job, I think, of illustrating the ways in which law doesn't exist, only enforcement. It's not a neutral thing. It, you know, The way the law and quote-unquote justice is carried out in the U.S. is entirely dependent on who has the power to do that and what their priorities are and where their focus is. Um, you talked about their like uh, Foreign Affairs Bureau and the way they have these departments within other cities. Uh, that was brought to light recently because there was an NYPD car in Paris during a pro-cop rally there. That's what. Um, that's how I learned that the NYPD has all these branches in foreign cities. They're just they're just going to start filming Law and Order franchises in all of those as a public affairs thing now. Uh, I, I joke that it would be called NYPD Bleu. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry to have said that, that on there. Pretty good. Uh, oof. Um, I I seem to have I I think I've led us on long enough of a bird walk here by by getting very general about that. But Ryan, you talked about how now there's a move for labor unions to expel that, uh, expel police unions, and you've also got aside from the AFL CIO, the other big supposedly progressive union is the SEIU. And I uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but Mary Kay Henry, the president of the SEIU, now she was directly interviewed about the role of police unions in her coalition. Yeah. Um, again, in in these times, a, another article by Hamilton Nolan, he interviewed Mary Kay Henry, who is the leader of the SEIU, which has two million members and is described in the article as America's most politically powerful progressive union. Uh, they passed a resolution last week vowing to align the union with the goals of the movement for black lives. And that movement is calling for divestment from policing. It is calling for the defunding of policing. You know, she lays out the case for why that should be a labor imperative. It, it's kind of refreshing to see talk like this from a major labor leader in the U.S. after a lot of years, as you described, of sort of complacency with the state of affairs. Yeah, it's I. I'm not an. Uh, I find it hard to be an incrementalist in a lot of ways. But the fact that a labor leader could actually be pushed, because I mean, in the article, Henry is at pains to essentially say she she can't say this openly, but she's basically saying, listen, these cop unions are also members of SEIU. They have power within our coalition, and we can't just kick them out. Uh, you know, as a one sided thing, which I think is false, but whatever. But the fact that she's willing to just openly say, we can't allow this kind of thing. We we can't allow racism within our ranks. We can't allow white supremacy within our ranks. For a very long time, you really couldn't get unions to even say that. And, and it's a testament to how much uh, the bottom-up labor radicalism that you've seen over the last few years matters. I think for a very long time, not just in unions in general, I think under the Obama administration, especially, there was a feeling that if you just put the right people in charge of everything, of all of these organizations, then things will just go the right way because the right cadre of philosopher kings or whatever will make all the right moves based on the data. And much like in baseball, what we have since figured out is that when you hand everything over to big data and to statisticians and and people whose entire experience is in running organizations, they're not always attached to what the results of that are. 
And and that certainly I think is the case now. You're you've got union workers beginning to realize that if they don't start pushing their leadership and demanding better of their leadership, their leadership's gonna stagnate. And yeah. and that has been a very encouraging trend over the past few years where you're seeing people say, We need to return to strikes. I mean, just the other day, what was it, Friday? Uh, 28 ports along the West Coast got shut down by longshoremen uh, for rallies and various activities as a show of solidarity. And that that's that hits America in the pocketbook when you shut down shipping along the Pacific Ocean. And specifically, that uh, shutdown was timed for Friday to honor uh, Juneteenth, which is mm-hmm. the uh, day in 1865 when slaves in Texas were informed of the fact that they were now free. Um, June 19th, it's not a holiday I was taught about growing up. I, it, it's more prominent in Texas, I believe, but it has gained um, national prominence now in the wake of these protests, which is one small result of them. Um, we should acknowledge here that uh, the last few weeks have been illustrative for the fact that protests get results. Yep. Just for example, and this is something Mary Kay Henry cites in the interview, you know, Minneapolis, the uh, school district there said they have canceled their contract with the police department. They are getting cops out of schools, which has long been a demand by people within the movement to say, you know, this is how our justice system funnels people towards prison when there are better options for how their lives can turn out. You know, it, it turns small offenses, small infractions into much bigger problems over the course of a life. And specifically on the issue of cops and schools, again, I keep coming, I, I know, here's my segue, right? Here's my moment. But um, as somebody who teaches a population of students that is very different from your typical city classroom, of course, if if cops really did make schools safer, then we would be covered in them, and we are not. And it it in so many spheres of life, I think we all know ultimately that police are not there to protect and serve. Because if that were the case, then you wouldn't see the way that you know rich people interact with police. You wouldn't see the fact that whenever possible, they use private security services. We in this country need to think about the fact that police has been allowed to turn itself into an occupying army at this point. And uh, if they're going to be that, I mean, the army doesn't get to be a member of SEIU. I mean, they're not unionized, but you get my point. The army doesn't get to be in the AFL-CIO. So they, if, if, they, if that's how the cops want to act, they don't deserve the protection of a union. They can choose to be on the side of the working class. Uh, well, they could have once. They have conclusively chosen to stand against them. And I think it's like an institutional culture, right? It's, you know, there's a very distinct politics to, to policing in this country. It's it's no surprise that they were some of the biggest backers of Donald Trump four years ago, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, he is the most cop aesthetic president we've ever had. Yes, he's very much their brand um, when their brand isn't Punisher logos. Um, I, I want to close out this segment with uh, another quote from Mary Kay Henry, president of SEIU. Um, there's a question that we talked about inside SEIU. This is a which side are you on moment. 
While the labor movement is a vehicle that brings together all kinds of workers from all walks of life, which is what I think makes us such a powerful vehicle for change in the nation, we also have to not tolerate racism in our ranks. The way we are choosing to do it is by going into hyperdrive with a member education program that we launched the same day that we moved the resolution. I didn't want the resolution to be a piece of paper. I wanted it to be a set of commitments that we're holding ourselves to at every level of leadership in the union. So there has to be a real active push to get this sort of um, inertia out of the way so that change can happen. Yes. I think for a very long time, inertia was on the side. I mean, it will always be on the side of power because that's what power does. It sits atop society and doesn't move. But I think you're beginning to see that people are realizing, perhaps, shall we say, like a statue of a Confederate general, that if you pull the right way enough times, you can topple it. And, um, you know, it's it's interesting because for the longest time, you had the center of the Democratic Party and the right wing of the Democratic Party, really, uh, constantly saying, well, no, you don't, you don't need to, uh, uh, you don't need to do your own thing. You don't need to elect lefty candidates to Congress. You don't need to do this or that. What you need to do is start in your localities. And well, that's what you got now. You actually have people trying to seize power in a real and active way in their communities in a process that is in some ways, it is extremely political, obviously, but it rejects formal politics the way that a lot of politicians want to see it done. And I think that scares the crap out of a lot of traditional stakeholders. The idea that politics is only something that happens on election day is something that is rapidly disappearing. And I think that is one of the better casualties of this era. Mm -hmm. Um, It's something that needed to... uh, be gotten rid of. We're going to take a little break here. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the other ways in which our society is failing and the ways that can be traced back to this problem of policing. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYOLP Rochester. If you'd like to continue slacking off, you can find all of our past episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. Remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Noah. Hey, y'all. One theme that we wanted to hit on on this episode is the idea of America as a country that just doesn't do a lot of things well. (laughs) We were number one for a while there in how badly we were handling the pandemic. That was nice. I think we're still there. Um, Probably. If you control for like how well we should be doing. Things are ticking back up in recent weeks. And that is one of the many elements of how America is doing a bad job of things. Um, And the reason that we're talking about this on this episode, having just spent half an hour discussing police unions, is I, I think we can draw a relationship between our inability to handle things as a functional society and the rising role of police in this society. You mentioned the point 
in the last segment about police being asked to handle more of society's problems over the last few decades, you know, whether that be homelessness or mental illness or even the education system. Somehow we have found a way to move those burdens towards police who carry guns with them and shoot people with those guns. Yeah, it's it's again, it's a reflection of the priorities that we have as a society where you allocate that money and what you ask people to do with that money. And in the case of America, the reason we're so bad at this is that, I mean, you have a sizable percentage of the country that uh, for whom the word government is itself a boogeyman. Uh, and if you tell them that, you know, you, you're spending any money on a public service, they will immediately suggest that it be privatized or eliminated or in recent years, increasingly hand it over to police, especially if it's something, uh, and this is weird, we're just giving the affected party money would do better. Like, you know, Salt Lake City is nobody's idea of a bastion of socialism, but it's one of the few places where they've actually tried just giving people housing and it's worked very well. Like there is a a resistance in this country that is deeply ingrained to the idea of just giving people things that people just deserve to have nice things in their lives. And not even like we're not even saying capital and nice things like just basic things, housing, healthcare, education. You can't get people to agree on this. There's a real cultural like belief that things need to be earned and Mm -hmm. whatever earned means can be different for every person. But that's what I was going to say that earned is not really true because if you're, if you're rich, then it's assumed that you earned that through some measure of hard work. It doesn't matter if like some people who are absolutely not in every position of power in this country at the moment, you mostly earned it by being born to the right parents you know, or for our younger viewers being delivered by the right stork. Um, but it, whereas if you're, if you're somebody who's working 60 hours a week and you're working three jobs to make ends meet, somehow that doesn't entitle you to anything, even by people who rhetorically want to help you. Um, and so instead, all of these problems, uh, what we do is we do the drill candles tweet and we hand it all over to the cops and we give them all this money, which is weird too, because so many things for the cops, and this is something we found out over the past few weeks, the cops get so many things for free. They get all of their complex military equipment for free. They get all the things they use to practice violence on working people for free. And they get extremely mad if your shop stops giving them a 10% discount on coffee or sorry to be stereotypical, but in at least one case, donuts. Or if you stop giving them an express line to get to the lunch counter, you want to talk about privilege. Uh, They have had an absurd level of privilege in this country because we're all apparently, or not all of us, but enough of us are apparently convinced that the police are all still Andy Griffith. And it just doesn't work that way anymore. And uh, for a lot of us, we don't want to admit it either because we're the people that the police actually works for, or we are afraid of finding out in, in our bones, literally, that we are not the people that the police work for anymore. Um, you, you mentioned Andy Griffith, and we had that episode earlier this year where we talked a little bit about how TV has shaped uh, people's perception of police. And you're seeing some examination of that now in the broader culture, you know, in these last couple weeks as everything's relationship with police has been examined. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know how much 
change is going to come from that because CBS is still going to have to fill out their primetime lineup this fall. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Listen, the the city of every every department of the city of Chicago can get its its turn in the sun now. Okay. I, I want to see Chicago post offices. I want to see Chicago schools. And we, we've covered fire and police. So I think next is uh, the DMV. I think that's the next one that we need to do. Um, but in all seriousness, I'm going to have just a brief complaint about this. But I do remember that Stephen Thrasher, specifically ages ago, made the point that Brooklyn Nine-Nine, to name a program that a lot of people are suddenly rapidly re-examining their relationship with, he made the point explicitly that humanizing cops and making them seem like basically lovable goofuses who screw up not because you know they're part of an institution that's designed to do that but because there's just a few bad apples he made the point that that's propaganda that that is meant to make people less likely to cast police in the correct role and i remember even other lefties being mad that you know this show doesn't uh i i want to watch this funny show that doesn't punch down and the thing is like well we were not thinking about at the time is that a show about police by definition is punching down. You have a show about a class of people who are selected, trained and equipped and employed specifically to literally punch down. And thankfully you're now seeing uh, people realize that, well, that was always true, but, but now they're, they're beginning to get it. Listeners of this show will of course know that the correct direction for a show to punch is out. To get away from this TV tangent, um, I've been glibly describing this segment as uh, America as a failed state. You know, we're a country that can't get things done. And one like concrete example of that is, um, you know, obviously unemployment has skyrocketed over the last two or three months now. Um, It had been in the 3% area and has since risen to 15, 13%. Is it 13% now? In that range, I, honestly, the last time I tried at to least look, the official I just kind poll. of yeah the the last time I tried to look at the unemployment rate, I just uh, the rest of the day was just spent in in a haze. So I I've been trying to actually stay away from that, even though I should be paying more attention to it. But yes, the point is, it is way too high for a country that has the money, the resources, and. Like, quite frankly, we have the capacity to keep these people employed. If if Britain and all of these other European countries can do better than us in this regard, we supposedly have the money to beat all of them at this game. And we can't do it, even though this is where America's competitive spirit should be coming out, maybe. Somehow never seems to come out in a positive way. You've spoiled the point I was going to get to. Um, I brought up a chart of the German unemployment rate for comparison. And, you know, it had steadily been at 5% over the past year or so. And it too has risen in the last few months to uh, like 6.5%. You know, okay. it's much lower than ours is right now. It, people will tell you that, oh, it was inevitable that this level of a pandemic was going to result in unemployment. But it doesn't have to be that way. There were lines this week in Kentucky for unemployment. I don't know if you saw this on Twitter that were like eight hours long. Yep. I think I did actually see that. And, and it's exactly what you're saying, Ryan. Like, here's the thing, right? It's not that we can't get things done. It's that we won't get things done. Like somehow we have the capability. And I know that that's a very, at this point, anodyne point to make because people are realizing this on a grand scale now, but, 
it is encouraging to see people making that transition in their own minds because under the past um in the past 12 years basically there has been a push to say well there are certain just intractable obstacles to progressive policy there are certain things that are just baked into the country that make it impossible to do good things for working people and you know we we can debate things about the new deal and the great society all you want but um they would not have been possible if if there was just a pre-surrender to the idea that there are things in the way that will stop you from doing it. Ultimately, what it comes down to is who has the power and the willingness to use that power to do things that matter for the grand majority of people in this country. And what you're seeing now is the realization by a large portion of America's uh, workers that Basically, nobody in power is actually willing to help them if you take what they have termed the 72-point air quote legitimate route. So that's how you get the protests. That's how you get demands that are beyond defund the police, but you know, also demands for housing rights, for healthcare rights, for education rights, for all of these other things that in a lot of other countries around the world, and especially developed countries, are uh, at least rhetorically committed to as human rights. And we as a country have failed to do that on every level. Forget actually doing anything real for people. We can't even talk the talk about these things. Yeah, I'm all of what you said is true. Um, I'm, I'm just, uh, maybe I'm hyper-focusing on like the unemployment statistics to prove a point, but to give another example of Denmark, unemployment rose there in April to uh, 5.4%. Oh, you no. Know, you know, so we have clearly taken a different approach to how we handle this crisis. They have chosen one in which I, I believe in Denmark, as in um, the UK, they're like paying companies directly to keep workers on staff. And it might seem like sort of a, a minor difference compared to our approach, which has been, you know, robust um, additions to unemployment benefits, uh, 600 a month famously, or is it 600 a week rather? But you know, when you have eight hour lines to get those unemployment benefits and when those benefits are due to run out at, is it this month or next month, July? I think it's this month. Yeah. I, I um, might be wrong. The pain in this country has been more harshly felt than it has been elsewhere where they've taken a smarter approach to how they handle this. You know, what is a real economic crisis? Because, uh, well, because the the answer to that question is that, Ultimately, you look at the composition of the upper classes in each of those countries, and what you see is that ours is the best. So if we're going to be number one in something, we are absolutely number one in the number of disaster capitalists that we have. Like We take advantage of these things more than anyone else does. So. Uh, I'm not saying that you know the the Danish or the German or the British rich don't deserve what they've got richly coming, but the difference between uh, their upper classes and ours is that in a lot of cases, when the American rich win, those rich people also tend to lose out, even if it's just you, to you know gild a little bit more of their mansions or whatever. But the end result is still the same. Like to them, they have more of an obligation to the people in their country. And 
in a lot of cases, that is a historical obligation that was backed up by the threat of, you know, violence upon their class. And here, the upper class has never really had to worry about that because anytime you've gotten close, say, you know, times like the bonus army or labor strikes or whatever, and this will bring it back full circle, they've been able to depend on the police. They've been able to depend on the army. They've been able to depend on a semi-trained bunch of people with blunt uh, weapons and and guns and whatnot that have unshakable loyalty to the state. Yeah. These these cops who are resigning, like I don't think they're going out to form some kind of, you know, uh, 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 workers vanguard, right? They're not switching sides. They're just being put out of the equation. And that's a good thing, mind you. But it hasn't changed who they are as people, and therefore they're still arrayed on the side of capital. Like they're they're not they're not suddenly becoming allies because they left the police force. I, I made reference to it in the first segment, and you mentioned it a bit more detailed there. Um, you know, we have a history in this country of uprisings being put down by police, uh, labor uprisings. We we can't get into like each individual incident because there are so many, but we have in past episodes on this show, talked about things like the anthracite strike in Pennsylvania. Um, I've been looking, reading about uh, the battle of Blair mountain, which was another one of these coal battles where miners and police fought and, you know, dozens of people died as a result because the police were helping the companies break this union, break the, uh, the United mine workers, I believe it was. So you have, the, the threat of social upheaval removing you know the upper class from its power hasn't maybe been as sharply felt here as it has been in Europe, where, I've, I mean, for decades, the Cold War was maybe more directly felt because the Soviet Union and the Soviet bloc was right there. There was a socialist alternative in reality in a way that hasn't been felt here and especially not since the 1990s or so yeah that that basically the the fall of the ussr basically ended any obligation on the part of american companies to actually provide anything to their workers and it did the same for europe because i mean that's when you started getting um liberalization privatization and shock doctrine capitalism basically in every part of the world but you know the the interesting thing to me And I keep coming back to this because I think this is really the most positive thing. I have seen people say that ultimately the thing that the, you know, the statues getting toppled and the protests going on and things and ports getting shut down and whatever, what they prove is ultimately that if people want, if enough people come together and want to do something, there is a, there is a point, there is a critical mass at which you can't stop them from doing it. These massive overinflated police budgets are all tied up in all these different things to the point where after a while, you just can't pay police officers to be on the line anymore. And and uh, protests go uh, unpatrolled or lightly patrolled. And cops uh, in this country are so protected by their special equipment and their fancy sound cannons and whatever that when they have to actually face protesters person to person, they get scared. And and that has been the fact that cops are getting pulled off the line, the cops are resigning, the cops are, are no longer there. That is obviously a very good thing. But the other side of the coin for me for this is the realization 
that our formal identity as a democracy is not, number one, that it, it didn't do anything to stop these protests. So clearly people have decided that politics need to be continued by other means than the ballot box, which is a, a absolute good thing, regardless, uh, like people in this country have taken a long enough time to realize that the only real way you get any kind of change is to put people in the streets. Um, but it will, and, and this is worrisome, uh, because they're going to use excuses to do it. They're going to dress it up in fancy language or, or in, in the rhetoric of protection is that there is going to be a reaction by power in this country to stop actual democratic growth, actual bottom-up democratic action. And that that's something that we also saw happen on, uh, well, I saw it on Juneteenth, when uh, places like Kentucky suddenly started massively reducing polling places, citing that there was a lack of poll workers. Look at you doing my transitions for me. Um, I was just about to talk about, you know, the response to a lot of protests and to unrest is to, well, it doesn't matter unless you're willing to vote out the people in power in November, or in a lot of cases, the line is to vote for Democrats in November, just that Vote minimum. blue no matter who. Um, which obviously ignores the ways in which Democrats have run a lot of major cities for decades now with mm-hmm. – these problems still manifesting. Uh, Minneapolis, for example, has a, an eight-one city council where the one is a Green Party member. But as you mentioned, like the other way in which that response is just insufficient is the fact that our democracy doesn't function. It is another el- element of our country that doesn't operate the way you would expect in a functioning country. Um, Kentucky shutting down like polling sites like on mass. What are the exact numbers here? They went from thirty seven hundred to two hundred, and in both of the largest countries in the state, one of which counties. I think is home counties. Sorry, thank you. Uh, one of which I think is home to one out of every five African Americans. So it's it's the county that Louisville is in. Right, they're going to have one polling place for I want to say six hundred thousand voters. Which, yeah, yeah, not great. And now, and they have had um, mail-in voting uh, in Kentucky owing to the pandemic. But even so, you can expect that uh, election day here will be a sort of a disaster on par with what was seen in Georgia just a few weeks ago, where polling sites had all these ma- malfunctions and you know places where the ballots weren't even there for them to use it. Or the machines weren't, um, and you'd think that the you'd think that the governor of Georgia, having been the former Secretary of State, mm-hmm. we're talking here about Brian Kemp, who is yes. noted for never having anything to do with elections being disastrous ever. <laughs> he has never done anything wrong ever in his life. Yeah. You'd think that would be just off of that resume that maybe, maybe that would be an election that would be competently run. But what we're seeing in this country is that the governing class feels safe enough to be incompetent with impunity. And that's the real problem we're facing. When you have one of the things that makes you a failed state from a historian's, from my historical point of view anyway, 
because I'm a little bit longer framed than a lot of other historians. Um, one of the things that tends to make states fail is when the class of political leadership basically washes its hands of any need to competently run the affairs of state. And we are at the point where our governing class, regardless of what letter is after their name, has basically decided that they don't actually need to show any capacity to govern uh, because, you know, they've convinced enough of the public to vote for them regardless. Uh, they've used different tactics to do it, that's for sure. But ultimately, what they've done is they've ensured themselves a large enough voting block that they only need to show a minimum level of competence to convince just enough people to come over the fence. And that's why we're in the pickle that we are right now. Yeah. Um, not not to go backwards from what we just said, but uh, talking about Louisville, uh, obviously it has been in the news in recent weeks as the site of some of the most heated protests there because in Louisville, uh, a woman named Brianna Taylor was shot and killed by police during a no-knock raid after which her boyfriend... Uh, called the police to say, you know, somebody kicked down my door and shot my girlfriend because he had no idea they were police who had done it. It just, it's sort of staggering that that can happen, but it certainly can. And this is not the only incident in which it has. And so that's the backdrop on which Louisville will have this election this primary election in which so many voting sites have been shut down so many people have been denied their ability to uh make their voice heard through the legal channels through the democratic channels and and so that's part of the reason why so many have felt the need to be out in the streets in recent weeks that's exactly right i mean you can't you can't take away people's ability to live a stable and secure life as we have done. Like this country has done everything possible to ensure that the average citizen is as insecure economically and uh, basically in every possible way as they can possibly be. We've massively expanded the um, we've, we've massively expanded uh, the market for things like gig work, for things like freelancing. We have divorced people from any reliance on having a stable paycheck, on having healthcare, on having education. And then we've basically subjected them to a security state that increasingly says, we're not going to give you anything. And if you complain about it, we're going to beat the crap out of you. Um, and then You've got, and and I think it's important to note that you don't really see anybody being shocked, truly, that these protests are happening. They were preparing for this because they knew that this was the natural consequence of everything else that they did. So when you see politicians, I don't care what party they are, I don't care what how big the municipality that they run is. When you see politicians saying stuff like, you know, we or or corporate figures, whoever, religious figures. Uh, I've seen people refer to uh, George Floyd's death as, you know, a, a sacrifice. I've seen people talk about these things that police have done in the most offensive terms before then turning and saying, well, we support the peaceful protesters. They knew that there would be violence. They were prepared for that possibility because if they weren't, they wouldn't have put police in charge of so much. They wouldn't have given them the money and the protections that they've given them. So ultimately, this is the fault of a leadership class that has completely abdicated any responsibility it has for 
the majority of its citizenry. They deserve pretty much everything that happens to them from here on out. Because if you want to say that you're a democracy, then you have to have a political class that works for the people. And instead, what we've had is a political class that has even more explicitly than usual, decided that they work for like developers, bankers, and a bunch of other people who make their money by taking advantage of the rest of us. Yeah. Uh, you know, when we talk about America being a failed state, just to think about what we've discussed in this segment alone, you know, we have a co- country that has been unable to meet the needs of its citizenry during a pandemic during which it has had the highest death toll in the world. And that death toll is the result of failures in government to, you know, really meet the scale of the problem head on when we should have at the beginning. And increasingly now you're seeing cases trickle back up in states like Florida and Texas and Arizona and California too. We, you have a country that has failed to meet people's economic needs during that pandemic, before the pandemic, to be sure, but also during that. You know, we've given out $1,200 checks and limited protections for things like uh, rent and mortgage payments, that both of those are increasingly running out. You know, the months are ticking away. You know, the pandemic hasn't really gone away. Unemployment is still in that 12, 13% range, unlike all of the other developed countries. You have a government that, as we've seen in just the Trump administration, is just mismanaged in all sorts of other ways that we can't begin to list here. What is the government good at? It is good at uh, brutalizing people. It is good at firing tear gas into crowds. It is good at knocking over 75-year-old men on the streets of Buffalo. And giving Um, them brain damage. Yeah. It's good at using force. It has been good at using force abroad and has been good at using force here at home. It is maybe the only thing it is good at, to which you say, well, the Taliban were good at using force. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't take much to be good at using force. Um the the Romans were good at using force. You know, the 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 different states that dominated the Greek world, that's what they were good at. It was, for most of our history, it was extremely rare to see a dominant state that didn't get there primarily by clubbing people over the head or cutting them off. Um, But the difference is that you can't have that be the basis on which you develop your power and then say all of the really nice platitudes that America says about itself. Or at least you can't do that and not call what you actually have a husk of a society. We have the outward appearance of it, but in no real sense, and and I know this is a controversial take, we don't actually live in a society. (laughs) Uh, How do we turn this uh, episode of a radio show into a positive note, like we like to end on so often on this show? How do we do that in these last four minutes? Well, to me, I say we look at the last few weeks of protests the last few weeks of uprisings and what they've actually been able to accomplish. In just these few weeks of pressure, we've seen changes that a lot of people didn't expect to see in decades. A lot of people spent you know, decades voting their way towards not much. And in three weeks, we've seen things like school districts you know, distancing themselves from police. We've seen 
Minneapolis at least paying lip service to the idea of disbanding their police department and starting anew with something different. Hopefully better, but you know, no guarantees there. We, we've seen cities reconsider their budgets, which had planned for police budget increases, but now are at least giving token cuts to those budgets, even if those cuts are much smaller than what activists demand. Here in Rochester, the demand has been for a 50% cut to RPD's budget. And uh, city council, I think, has proposed a, or passed even, a 4% cut. And let's be clear, most of that cut would not be payroll. That That's something that I think is, is kind of undersold here, that most of the time when you're asking for defunding the police, what we're asking, what we're asking for is not to say, oh, they shouldn't be paid anything because that's what cops will tell you is the demand. But that isn't it. The demand is to end having this massive amount of equipment that will only ever be used on citizens, uh, to end uh, having unaccountable departments that, you know, have like black sites and and torture people for like a city of 200,000. That's what defunding means. And so to bring it full circle somewhat, you're going to hear in the coming months uh, from people like the, you know, the, the esteemed president of the Locust Club and the guy who runs the SBA NYPD Twitter account or whatever, mm-hmm. that all, we're, all activists are trying to do is make the streets unsafe by not paying cops or by essentially making cops work for peanuts. And none of that, even if that were True, it would be a good thing, but it's not true in the first place. Like, all they're asking for is to bring cops a little bit down to earth. And the fact that cops are throwing a hissy fit about it, in my experience, means that they know the the gravy train uh, was unearned in the first place. I think beyond just what these defunds will do to police departments, it has to be noted what that money could be used to do elsewhere in city budgets because we're facing a stark choice. You know, austerity is going to be imposed as a result of this economic crisis. There's no doubt about that. Tax revenues have fallen. So what do governments do? They can either, you know, raise the budget for police departments in order to quell whatever unrest may rise from those conditions, or they can you know, try to keep budgets at least where they are, if not expand them for things like schools and the things that we like to have in a society. The the things that make society actually function day to day. And most importantly for police unions and so on, the things that reduce their power over society. A populace that has access to services is a populace that one doesn't need to get beat up as often, and number two won't like getting beat up as often because they won't consider it normal. Yeah. And that's what they're really scared of that eventually police violence, which for the longest time has been seen in America as something that if you get it, you deserve it, will finally be called out for the illegitimate use of force that it is. There is no circumstance under which what we have seen police departments get away with is justifiable. None. Zero. Um, We're running a bit against the clock here now, but um, I hope that we've been able to offer a little bit of a bright spot at the end of what has been another bleak episode of Punching Out. Um, For this week, I'm Ryan. I'm Noah.
This is Punching Out. You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.